Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello from me, Richard Heller, in a cloudy, slightly windy southeast London. Apologies from Peter, who is unavoidably absent. Grateful, as usual, to um, our friend Roger Alton for um, relieving him from the pavilion end. Uh, hi, it's uh, Roger here, also in South London. I've just enjoyed watching the Irish getting murdered by the All Blacks, so it's been a good morning so far. We're very glad to welcome as our guest, um, Nicholas Brooks. Nicholas has written an absolutely enthralling history of Sri Lankan cricket, a study that's very much overdue. We'll get to talk to him about it, but um, first of all, Nicholas, welcome to the podcast. Perhaps you'd join us in um, paying a tribute to um, Owen Morgan, who's just retired, possibly the greatest captain, England captain in the modern age. Uh, morning, Richard. Morning, Roger. Thanks so much for having me back on. And yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Owen Morgan's retirement, he leaves behind a sort of wonderful legacy. I think it's very easy to forget up until 2015 how bad or how inconsistent England were as a white ball side. And in the space of, sort of one World Cup cycle to have transformed into sort of the most punishing batting unit in world cricket is uh, really quite incredible. And um, he leaves behind, I think, a system that's sort of well set to continue. I think the depth of England's white ball batting is really impressive and um, look forward to seeing how they go at the T20 World Cup in his absence. He's an interesting guy because his team obviously loved him and, you know, and also he was very impressive. So it's quite, it's very different from Stokes. But whether he's the greatest England captain ever in the history of the universe, I think, you know, there's a bit of time to go on that, but not least with the current captain and Cook was a very good captain and so on. Uh, and, you know, the role of sort of Red Bull cricket, White Bull cricket, but he's obviously a very impressive guy and it'll be interesting to see what he does next. It's also interesting he got two test match hundreds, I haven't quite realised. But it, it, I think what, what Morgan does next will be a very interesting thing. He's said that he wants to um, spend um, some time with his other great love, which is horse racing. Um, <laughs> good for him, yeah. <laughs> good for him, well deserved. But uh, uh, we'd certainly like to see him stay on in some role in English cricket, wouldn't we? Yeah, I, I would, a chum of mine ghosted his columns when he was a young man in Ireland, and he was a huge uh, star in Ireland, you know, massive sort of cricket star, and he ghosted his columns, said he was an absolutely lovely guy to work with. Nicholas, let's move on to your book. Your book is called An Island's Eleven. It's published this week by the History Press. Though before we get too deeply into the history, Sri Lanka are playing a, um, a series right now against um, Australia, they're playing it, aren't they, against a background of deep economic crisis and a virtual breakdown in, in everyday life. What sort of role is um, the series and cricket having in um, what you might call the, the national psyche of Sri Lanka at the moment? Uh, well, it's a great question, Richard. It's a really interesting one because uh, I think the first point to make is that Sri Lanka is in a really dire situation economically, socially. There are real problems uh, where the resolution is not clear. And I think before the series, there was maybe uh, there were maybe some questions about whether it was even appropriate to be for Sri Lanka to be hosting cricket at this sort of time. And so to see the response that the games have drawn, I mean, particularly the one day T20 games at Ketarama, 
raucous, buzzing crowds full of smiling faces, people really showing their gratitude to Australia for making the trip has been incredibly spiriting. Uh, I think it shows that, well, there's only so much cricket can do, but um, even at the worst of times, cricket can provide a, a distraction, a bit of escapism, and give the people of Sri Lanka something to smile about, um, even if it's only momentarily. Not much to smile about for them in the first test, was there? No. <laughs> which is over, yeah. There they wasn't, which um, sort of, it passed by in a flash. I woke up in Sri Lanka and been bowled out for 100 in sort of 25 overs. Yeah. Left uh, Australia, I think, tap five to chase. Again, it's a, it's a worrying situation in test match cricket where I think we spoke about this the last time we're, I was on. Uh, Sri Lanka's struggling to put up first innings totals at Gaul. Uh, I read something online, I think only four sides ever have lost test matches at Gaul when they've won the toss and batted first. And three of those have been Sri Lanka in the last 18 months. So whilst that second innings collapse will carry the headlines, if they can't put up decent first inning scores, it is always going to be a struggle. The highlight was Steve Smith getting run out, actually. Um, <laughs> can I ask you a question, Nick? I mean, your book is unbelievably detailed, the most detailed book I've read outside sort of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and I haven't read that. How, how, where did it come about? It's a phenomenal book about with so much so much cricket in it, but actually, but just uh, how did it come about? Where did you start? Um, well, really, it came about, I think I started thinking about it in probably about 2016, uh, I was talking about to Peter about getting into cricket writing and we struck on the fact that really no one had written about Sri Lanka. Um, I went to the MCC library and I was kind of shocked to see that, you know, reams and reams of texts on all these other countries and a tiny little section on Sri Lankan cricket. I, um, having grown up in the 90s, also was used to Sri Lanka being kind of part of the furniture. And I was really quite shocked to discover that test status had only arrived in 1982. And um, that sort of prior to that, there'd been this kind of long, quite arcane history, uh, which really hadn't been covered in any detail. And I think everyone, especially people who've followed cricket in the 90s and the noughties, has a kind of romantic attachment to Sri Lanka. Yeah. I think for, for lots of people, they were kind of a second team. They played the game in a sort of incredibly inspiring emotive way uh, and I think that Sri Lankan cricket sort of really deserves and warrants more in more attention. Well it's it's got the attention it deserves in, in your book um, Nicholas. Um, message, central message that comes over to me in it is um, just simply the astonishing vitality and resilience of Sri Lankan cricket. There seems to be this cycle of great or near great players that keep coming through despite all sorts of obstacles, a very uh, low economic base to support cricket, long isolation from international cricket, this sort of long history of amateur status, and then, you know, underpayment of players afterwards. <laughs> Generally, pretty rotten administrators. And of course, you know, as we touched on a moment ago, um, terrible problems within the country. Terrorism, civil war, repression, tsunami and latterly you know economic turmoil and just wonder you know there's simply Sri Lankan players who not only seem to have to be talented but seem to be absolutely superlative human beings and um, anyway that's a tremendous message of the book. Yeah I think you're absolutely right Richard to strike on the sort of vitality of Sri Lankan cricket um, I mean, I think if you look just in the first years of test status, we saw the rebel tour, meaning that half the side were no longer playing test cricket. Then 
a civil war breaking out from 1987. Uh, Sri Lanka wasn't able to host test matches for five years. So really, I mean, just within that first decade of being involved in test cricket, there were huge hurdles which have really continued ever since. And I think you're right to say that the cricketers, guys like uh, Mahela Jayawardena, Murali Sangakkara, have um, become sort of wonderful ambassadors. They feel more ambassadorial, I think, than sportsmen do in the Western world. And I think that's probably due um, in part to what the country has endured and what those guys have endured personally uh, throughout their lives and their careers. The people like Sanger, for example, is a massive sort of elder statesman figure, isn't it, Sanger? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, Roger, that he's probably sort of Sri Lanka's greatest ambassador. You look at yeah. the speech he gave at Lords the Spirit of Cricket um, lecture in 2004, yeah. which was just, I mean, a really, really amazing speech about Sri Lankan cricket and its ills addressing the problems as well as sort of the heritage. Uh, I think recently we've seen Sri Lanka's typically a place where people are very scared to speak out against the authorities. And we've seen that within the peaceful protest, cricketers like Roshan Mahanama and Mahela Jayawardena kind of speaking out against uh, social problems and sort of leading that peaceful protest, uh, which I think is a very powerful message. I think cricket in Sri Lanka can still be something which is sort of a force for good and can drive change. Yeah. It's always struck me driving, when you've been in Sri Lanka playing that you see wherever you go, people are playing cricket and mostly it's sort of little nippers, barely taller than the stumps slamming the ball all over the place with this sort of fantastic wristy vitality i mean it's a wonderful place to sort of see cricket and watch cricket and wonderful cricketers and that needs to be maintained doesn't it oh yeah uh, it's amazing i think wherever you go in sri lanka now you see little games of pop-up softball being played everywhere i think traditionally sort of four to five is softball hour in every town and village and you'll get people flooding onto the street and these joyous games there's an incredible cricket spirit um, across Sri Lanka, uh, that really does need to be nurtured and developed. And I think that more could be done to bridge the gap between the sort of softball local cricket and red ball cricket. We've seen, you know, Malinga's obviously the great example of a softball cricketer turned uh, red ball cricketer. And I think that there are masses more out there who haven't been discovered and that Sri Lanka could probably do more to tap that uh, source. Nick, what struck me in your book is... Um that a lot of very great players have been to Sri Lanka playing cricket, like uh, WG and Don Bradman and so on. What's, how, can you talk about that a bit and explain how that happened? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Sri Lanka was really lucky, Roger, because it was sort of, um, I think I used the phrase in my book, it was geographical happenstance. When the Suez Canal opened around the same time as the Ashes started, I think about the 1870s, Colombo kind of emerged as the natural point of transit for ships sort of going between England and Australia. So the Colombo Cricket Club, which had been started by British planters, a lot of whom were ex-MCC men, they kept a you know natural relationship with the MCC and said, why don't you play a game when your ship stops over here? So that started this tradition of what was called whistle-stop cricket, supposedly because the ship's captain would blow his whistle when it was time for the players to come back and get back on the boat and carry on their journey. And so... That gave rise to this situation where you saw, yeah, as you say, guys like Grace, Bradman coming and playing in Sri Lanka, which was, I mean, really incredibly fortunate. I think Don Bradman only ever played cricket in England, Australia, America, Canada and Sri Lanka. He played in Sri Lanka twice in 1930 and 1948. And having these great cricketers kind of early in Sri Lanka's 
uh, cricketing yeah. life really fueled the imagination of the local public. You got to see local cricketers sort of testing their metal against England and Australia's best. And these whistle stops were hugely exciting days for an otherwise quite cricket starved public. Did he get any runs, Bradman? Bradman, it's um, <laughs> interesting you ask, Roger, because I think in 1948, he made a very scratchy, I can't recall off the top of my head, it was a 12 or 15 made over the course of the hour and the crowds were in absolute shock. They were, um, this is a ghost of the Bradman we've heard about, what's going on, he can't get the ball off the square. And then supposedly at lunchtime after he batted, they found out that there'd been a mix up with the measuring tape and the pitch was sort of four yards shorter um, than it should have been. Uh, so that was given as the excuse and Bradman has been returned to sort of deity status. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. W.G. Grayston, I think in W.G. Grayston didn't do very well in Sri Lanka either. No, he didn't, was. Rich. He had a horrible day out. I think he was um, he was bowled by Tommy Kalat, a young Sri Lankan promising bowler. And uh, then he was annoyed that the explorer H.M. Stanley was sort of um, drawing the attention of the crowd. So apparently he went off and sulked in the pavilion all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very typical. Um, the least popular visitor, by the sound of it, was, and not perhaps surprisingly, it was Douglas Jardine, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I mean, Jardine is known the world over for that Bodyline series, but uh, his visit to Sri Lanka a couple of years later was probably even more acrimonious from the sort of time he arrived to the time he left, I think he put noses out of joint. Uh, there were accusations of racism, of um, his car broke down on the way down to Gaul and he kind of refused lifts and they arrived three hours late for the game, and which ended up lasting about 25 overs. And then there was sort of the centrepiece of the tour was a Sri Lanka and India combined 11 taking on England or the MCC as it was called then, which was a really kind of, magnificent moment for the Asian public. Jardine sat out seemingly kind of out of spite and then in his absence England went back to the old bodyline tactics and when they looked like the game might be sort of getting close Nobby Clark sort of did a bit of road works with his boot into the pitch and um, <laughs> Sri Lanka and India collapsed in the final innings and the MCC won narrowly. Uh, so it was a really, it was an acrimonious sort of few weeks. It was a time when Selene's nationalism was really rising. And this tour became a bit of a rallying point because I think that, you know, Sri Lanka had long had these ideals of sort of English fair play and gentlemanly spirit shoved down their throats. And the fact that they were a sham was kind of quite openly exposed by Jardine's behaviour. And um, yeah. It was. Mm. It's, a, it's a really interesting sort of few weeks in Sri Lankan history. Fascinating. Well, it's, it's, it was said of Douglas Jardine that he's the English cricket captain who might lose Australia as a dominion. It looks so he nearly lost Sri Lanka as Ceylon as a dominion as well. Nick, as you say, uh, Sri Lanka is a, is a team and as a country and a team beloved by sort of anybody who's really interested in cricket and that's partly because of the joy of the way they played do you want to just talk about some of the sort of great Sri Lankan uh, players who, who have sort of lit up the lit up the stage so to speak yeah I think really uh probably the first to light up the international stage or to sort of really come into international consciousness was Dilip Mendis uh this test that Sri Lanka played in England in 1984 at the back end of the summer where England had been smashed by the West Indies and they were looking to sort of restore a little bit of dignity against Sri Lanka 
and were expecting it to be a walkover. And that didn't happen at all. Siddharth Wetamuni scored 190. And Dalit Mendes, a sort of pocket-sized powerhouse, he's about five foot three, as wide as he is tall. And he tucked into both of <laughs> them with relish, hooking and uh, cutting to the boundaries. And he um, narrowly missed out on twin hundreds. And I think that was the first time many people in England realised, wow, there are players in Sri Lanka who can really, really bat. And I think that trend was probably continued by Aravinda de Silva coming here in 1995 as a sort of unheralded overseas player for Kent. He uh, made just the most incredible 100 in the B&H final in 95 at a time when that game was really still a showpiece event for the English summer. And then moving forward to the 96 World Cup, we saw Sanath Jayasuriya change the way white ball opening batsmen played. Aravinda playing amazing innings in the semi-final and final. And then... Jayasuriya was one of the most exciting players to watch I've ever seen, I think. It was a joy to watch Jayasuriya. I would have to agree, Roger. I think that he's one of the most exciting players to ever play cricket. One of these guys who really has changed the way that cricket is thought about and played. I mean, I know that I think Ian Botham and Mark Greatbatch had done pinch hitter roles before in one day cricket, but really having two openers, Jayasuri and Kalawitarana, uh, going hard for the first 10 overs, looking to put sort of 80, 90, 100 runs mm. on the board in that power play. It changed the dynamic of one day cricket. And uh, I think in 1997, the year after the World Cup, Jaya Surya was the third highest run scorer in ODIs. And um, he scored at a strike rate of about 113. I think only one other player in the top 100 run scorers uh, scored at over a strike rate of 100. So, I mean, you look at those figures and that changes the dynamic. Sri Lanka were able to put up uh, sort of scores of 262, 70, 280 much more regularly and just make it much more difficult for sides. Yeah. Mm. Before Jayasuriya and Aravinda, the four and over was still quite a pretty good rate in one day cricket. And that sort of dis that, <laughs> that disappeared forever, didn't it? Yeah, it, it really did. And I think that Aravinda sort of coming in off the back of Jayasuriya, I mean, it was a very daunting prospect for bowlers from all over the world. A player that I've acquired a lot of res even more respect for after reading your book is um, Chaminda Vas. I think he emerges especially well in terms of he's a player of almost heroic, you know, application and, and dedication. And um, you know, he almost never seems in his career to have bowled a bad ball. <laughs> no, you're right, Richard. I think Vass is a wonderful uh, servant to Sri Lankan cricket, an incredibly hard worker. He um, supposedly uh, was just sort of relentless in the gym. And I think even recently Sri Lanka now do fitness tests for their current crop of players, which was a, is a, part of it's a two kilometer um, sort of circuit and Vass is the bowling coach or was and he sort of beat some of the current crop of players yeah. in that two kilometer time which gives an extent of sort of the way he's looked after himself and I think he's probably the most enduring Asian seamer I think of all seam bowlers only Imran has more wickets in Asia than Vass and considering that he's you know he was never the quickest uh, it's an amazing legacy he, that left arm angle, he was metronomic on the money, clever variations. He sort of worked and worked. He developed re reverse swings sort of halfway through his career, which made him a more threatening bowler. Uh, in test matches, he, I think he was a perfect foil for Murley because he kept things so tight. He really kept pressure on. And we saw towards the, the end of his career as well, he developed his batting. He scored centuries in test cricket, 
I think, yeah, Vass was a wonderful, wonderful cricketer who probably doesn't get the credit that he deserves. What about Murali, though, Nick? I mean, the great, well, you know, the second best spin bowler in the world in history. I mean, what do you want to say something about him? I do. Uh, he got that. badly treated. He got very badly treated. I mean, we've seen so many tributes to Shane Warne, rightly so, over the last few months as the greatest bowler that ever lived. I don't think Murali should be left behind or be forgotten about in that conversation because I think what Murali did was remarkable. Uh, I think the first thing to say about him is the natural tools. I think if you could build a right arm to bowl off spin, it would probably look something like Murali's with that sort of shoulder, which is kind of uh, helicopter-like, uh, the arm which is naturally slightly bent and a plasticine wrist just all of that enabled him to give the ball an incredible rip but I think the other thing to say is that despite those natural tools I mean it's very easy to focus on that but Murley was an incredibly hard worker during the time when Bruce Yardley was Sri Lanka coach I think around 1997 that year the two of them put in hours and hours of work uh, Murley learned to kind of extract drift and dip, use the angles of the crease and really developed as a bowler. And then uh, I think having seen Saklane Mushtak bowl his Dusra in a test, Murali started to work on that and he developed the top spinner, which went straight, then ev eventually developed the Dusra, which went the other way and really kept improving as a bowler. If you look at the stats, I think sort of for 100, 200, 300, his wickets, he kept getting faster. The average kept getting lower and in many ways, I think Murali was a throwback. He was happy to just bowl and bowl and bowl at the Oval in 98 when Sri Lanka got that magnificent win over England. He delivered something like 113 overs, which I think was the... Jesus. <laughs> I think it's um, the biggest workload by a modern bowler. I think the last time anyone else got close was Tony Locke. Um, and so I think, yeah, it shouldn't be overlooked that Murali worked incredibly hard, maximised his natural gifts. Did you know, do you know him? Was he a nice guy? He is the nicest guy imaginable, Roger. Um, I think you always hear this about sort of cricketers. Oh, so-and-so is incredibly humble. Yeah. And I think until yeah. you sort of interact with them, it's so hard to believe. But I think Murley is the most sort of humble, kindest man I've come across. The first time I met him, he gave me his number without sort of any sort of badgering and said, just call me if there's anything you need. And then um, we spoke. He was very frank. He was very honest. He played a huge role in Sri Lanka in integrating the youngsters into the side. I think uh, it's not unfair to say that Sri Lanka probably has a sort of different kind of hierarchy maybe to what we have in the Western world. And there had maybe traditionally been a bit of a divide between seniors and juniors. Um, I think Murali felt that when he first came into the team and tried to redress that situation and was always someone who put an arm around younger players, took them out for dinner on tour and stuff like that. And so... I think he was a wonderful team man as well as a wonderful bowler. Marvellous, yeah. He does a great deal of... He's a great philanthropist, isn't he, Murali? Of course, Richard. I shouldn't um, forget to say that he has done the most um, amazing philanthropic work. Uh, he and his manager, uh, Kushal Gunasekara, have a charity, The Foundation of Goodness, which does has done really amazing work in the wake of the tsunami they uh, sort of help Southern cricketers uh, provide them scholarships. And now Ramesh Mendis has moved from the Foundation Academy into the Sri Lanka test side. Uh, Murali was also involved in, you know, uh, taking supplies up to the north of Sri Lanka, which was kind of behind a curtain after the tsunami and did an incredible amount for people there. And 
helped to build a thousand houses. Yeah, in terms of philanthropy, I think what he and the Foundation of and Goodness have done is really quite uh, Im- incredible. Yeah. No, the, the sort of central section of your fabulous book is called The Age of Arjuna. Do, could you just say a little bit about him as captain and so on? Yeah, I think that he is um, peerless in terms of being the most influential figure in Sri Lankan cricket, Roger. I think it's important to say that uh, up until 1988, when Arjuna took over, all the Sri Lankan captains, bar a couple of guys who'd done it on a sort of very briefly, had gone to the two major anglicized schools uh royal or st thomas's and sri lankan cricket had been uh sort of deferential i think to the mcc rulebook and the english way of playing the game and i think that arjuna's tenure was a time when sri lanka started to embrace their own identity their own psyche and i think that Ranatunga is a very un-Sri Lankan figure in the fact that he was pugnacious. Um, He always seemed to have a sort of barb on the tip of his tongue and he really didn't take any prisoners. He was prepared to give back as much as he took. And I think he sort of dragged Sri Lanka up. Uh, They grew incredibly quickly in those first years of the 90s from being considered sort of rank outsiders, minnows, whipping boys to being world champions in 1996. And I think a lot of that is down to Ranatunga, um, not just his cricketing brain, but his character, his intensity, his personality. Yeah, he was quite a handy player as a as a cricketer. I mean, it wasn't only his captaincy, was it? He scored a lot of runs for Sri Lanka, when, particularly when they needed it. Uh, yeah, indeed, Richard. Um, I think his batting is really quite overlooked. But um, when Gary Sobers first came to Sri Lanka in the early 80s, I mean, he was entranced by Ranatunga as a teenage batsman. He said, uh, you know, here's a player who is really memorable. Uh, I think that maybe there's a sense that Ranatunga sort of slightly sacrificed personal glories in a search of higher powers. I mean, I think that four test centuries is a pretty meagre return for a batsman of his quality. He made a lot of scores in between that 80 to 100 mark, a lot of crucial innings for Sri Lanka. But I think he's one of those rare cricketers who's seen as captain first and cricketer second. And he shows that um, he's a reminder that the game's about more than bat and ball. And it's between uh, about what's between your ears as well. One of the great players we haven't talked about is um, Lasith Malinga. Malinga's, I would say, from casual observation, the most influential um, Sri Lankan cricketer, uh, perhaps of all time, certainly the, the most imitated uh, in nets and um, grounds all over the world. Um, but he's a remarkable human story, isn't he, Nicholas? What can you tell us about him? Uh, a great, incredible human story, Richard, from uh, Malinga's from Rathkama, just by Gaul, sort of uh, on the southeast part of the island. And up until 1617, I think he played exclusively softball cricket, bowling with a tennis ball on the beach, which is how he developed that low arm. Uh, style with lots of Yorkers to take the kind of pudding sand pitch out of the equation. And he was very lucky to be discovered by a former Sri Lanka fast bowler, Champaka Ramanayaka, at a uh, trial day in Gaul. And sort of, I mean, as soon as he had a cricket ball in his hands, he was hugely successful. But he did have to work incredibly hard to make that sort of freakish low arm action repeatable. He put on lots of muscle working in the gym and... um, Ramanayaka sort of uh, stuck boots to the popping crease that he bowled at um, to hone his Yorker. And I think that he grew into the best death bowler in the world. And I mean, had an amazing 
enduring career as a white ball bowler. I think he also had a remarkable bowling brain, which is often overlooked. And you're right to say that he's inspired lots of um, sort of replicas. And at the moment, people in Sri Lanka are getting excited about Mahesh Paterana, who's just been kind of plucked straight from the under-90s into CSK's squad in the IPL and is um, being dubbed Junior Malinga with the same kind of low-arm style. The other thing about Malinga is he was very much not a posh bloke, wasn't he? And that's, it's coming through, um, was, it was very interesting about him. No, you're right, Roger, absolutely. I think his um, dad worked at the bus depot in Gaul, so he had quite sort of humble origins. And as I've talked about in the book, you know, uh, college cricket, schoolboy cricket was so, such a sort of feeding ground for Sri Lankan cricket and um, especially the Colombo schools. And so then you have this situation in the noughties where it's kind of a flinging open of the doors with um, Sanath Jayasuriya from Matara in the south, although he did play good schoolboy cricket, kind of taking over the captaincy, I think was a huge symbol. And then Malinga, I mean, he did play a bit of schools cricket. Uh, he got transferred to Mahinda because he was so successful, but he really had come from outside of that system. And so I think it's a message to kids from anywhere in Sri Lanka that no matter where you come from, no matter what kind of cricket you've grown up on, there is a pathway to uh, the national side. And I really hope that we see more softball cricketers. Uh, Is that the case now, Nick, still, do you think? There is a path. I think there is a pathway. I think more needs to be done to tap those players. I think that we haven't seen a huge amount of players who are coming from softball, you know, straight into sort of first-class cricket and maybe that more could be done to scout. It's still, I mean, Sri Lankan cricket, certainly for many generations, was a very much a middle-class game for the urbanised middle class, wasn't it? And it was very much confined to the, the big cities in the western part of the country, wasn't it? Yeah, indeed. I mean, although the game does have uh, its roots in the hill country where uh, the British tea planters were, Colombo very quickly became the centre of cricket and uh, really all roads lead to Colombo and not that many come back out. And uh, it started, Richard, as you say, kind of in the anglicised schools. It was um, in the 19th century seen as a sort of way of instilling British values. And the urban upper middle classes were really the ones who uh, pioneered the game and made up the bulk of the players really through to the 1970s, the 1980s, when test status came about. Only then did you really see Sri Lankan cricket start to spread and democratise through the 90s and noughties. Schools are still very important in Sri Lankan cricket. They've sort of faded a little bit in other countries. A very high proportion of Sri Lankan cricketers have been to, uh, the best cricketers have been to quite a small group of schools, haven't they? Yeah, they have. Uh, it's this sort of strange oddity in Sri Lankan cricket where, I mean, even I, whenever I fight sort of a new player emerges, you look up where they went to school, which isn't the case sort of, I don't think, in England or Australia or anywhere else really in the world. And um, you're right, there's a small group of colleges who provide the bulk of the players and there's a very, very strong school cricket system, lots of two-day cricket, uh, competitive cricket there's a two-day league and a one-day league so the best are playing the best often and um in a competitive structure and then also of course there's the big match tradition where schools have a kind of rival school that they play at the end of the season in a big match which is normally a sort of test venue uh gets huge crowds so i think it's fair to say that players leave school probably 
uh, more developed than in other parts of the world. And um, that leads to a kind of sort of their, ex their path is expedited in a sense. Nick, what's the structure of sort of first class cricket in Sri Lanka? It sort of struck me as a bit odd, if, if at all. Yeah, it is odd, Roger, because um, I mean, it, it's the only country that I know or the only major country which doesn't have a system founded on territories. Uh, it's a club based system. Uh, so you've got this sort of really strange situation where, I mean, three of the biggest clubs, Colombo Cricket Club, uh, Nondescript NCC and the SSC, the Singhalese Sports Club, are they're all on the same road, Maitland Crescent, Maitland Place, uh, really? stone's throw from each other. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, of the clubs in the top two divisions, most of them are based in and around Colombo. So you, I, I guess you've got a kind of conundrum where cricket hasn't really sort of spread to all parts of the rurality. Still, very few cricketers have come from the north and east. And if you want to make it in first class cricket, you really have to come to Colombo to do so. Uh, some from the south, no? Around... Um... No, there, there are some from the south. There is um, Gaul CC, I think, are in Div 2. But again, you get a lot of cricketers. I know when Sanath Jayasuriya yeah, first started out, he's from Matara, which is sort of a bit further along from Gaul. And I think he was commuting from Matara up to Colombo every day, sort of facing yeah. two hours on trains there, two hours back, just to play club cricket. And yeah. um, a lot of clubs have been uh, sort of awarded first class status in the past 20 years. So there's been talk that the standard has been diluted. There's a bit of a chasm between club cricket and first class cricket. And um, there is navel gazing in Sri Lanka over whether the system's working and um, sort of how it might be reformed. Mm. Now you can bet that any club given first class status isn't going to relinquish it, is it? <laughs> no, they certainly aren't, Richard. And then you also have a situation where the clubs are responsible for electing the sort of SLC office bearers. So you've got oh. um, the clubs sort of have authority. And uh, so when it comes to systemic reform, uh, it's difficult. At least they're real clubs, aren't they? I mean, there's some... <laughs> In Pakistan, they had a problem some years ago with, with clubs that are absolute ghosts but still had voting powers. And, and, and um, I, th really. I think the same thing <laughs> yes, has happened in Sri Lanka. <laughs> I don't know whether it does, but there are some sort of defunct clubs which have still managed to cling on to votes in the past and uh, sort of very uh, labyrinthine situation. Why did it take so long for Sri Lanka to get test status? Why did that happen? Or is it, was it right? What do you think? I mean... I personally don't think it was right, Roger. I think that I think that cricketing-wise, Sri Lanka was maybe even good enough from the 1930s. Uh, you look at guys, players that they had like FC Dasaram, uh, Sargo Jayawikrema, Mahadevan Sathasivam. And I mean, you look at the way that sort of teams like New Zealand and India first did when they got into test cricket and you wonder whether Sri Lanka could have been in that club from then. Uh, maybe there was a sense that they lacked the proper cricketing infrastructure because everything was based in Colombo around a very small group of players. Then again, I think Sri Lanka were probably close to getting test status in 1968 when they were scheduled to tour England. That tour broke down sort of over, um, well, a really disastrous situation where the selectors picked themselves. Uh, <laughs> then that held them back in the 70s, but there were other issues uh, there was a sort of F permanent FX crisis. Uh, again, there was this thing about infrastructure, about logistics, where the Sri Lanka had 
the sort of proper facilities to host test cricket. And then I think there was also during the 1970s, this slight uh, kind of conflict between East and West. I think England and Australia still had veto powers and they were worried about Asia probably becoming mm -hmm. uh, the new home of cricket. And I think that, you know, if that block had emerged earlier of Sri Lanka, India and Pakistan, maybe that might have been problematic for the Western cricket nations. But I think the sort of upside of that is that when Sri Lanka came to test cricket in 1982, they were probably already a than any nation before them. Do you think Sri Lanka have been shortchanged even after getting international status? I mean, there's a long, long period where they get sort of like one and two test matches in a mm. in a tour, and they're added on as kind of the fag end to a season, particularly in England. Um, yeah, I think they've been really shortchanged, Rich. I think that uh, the English snobbery of the one test thing has certainly stung in Sri Lanka, and. Um, even when I spoke to Murali, he uh, said something striking, like we were not regarded. They were thought of as kind of an insignificant minnow, uh, even after winning the World Cup in 1996, mm. sort of tacked on to the end of uh, South African summer in England, um, yeah. given one test in 98, which they consummately smashed England in. And I think uh, the situation was quite similar in Australia. I think between kind of, when was it, 1990 and 2010, Sri Lanka played seven tests in Australia, two of them which were in the sort of, shoehorned into the midwinter and at the same time all of the test nations other test nations played sort of double triple as many times so i think sri lanka has been shortchanged i think partly that's been due to their perception you know a latecomer a small island in the indian ocean rather than a reflection of their cricketing prowess yeah, yeah. it's a wonderful place to play cricket a wonderful place to play and watch it a very i think it's a very popular tour when people actually tour there isn't it yeah yeah, I think it's a unique place to play cricket and to watch cricket. I think it's got sort of charms which can't really be matched anywhere else in the world. I think the combination oh, yeah. of beautiful grounds. I mean, Gaul is, I would say, probably the most iconic ground in Test cricket. And then you've got the train ride up to the hills in Candy, that sort of natural yeah. diversity. Then, I mean, beautiful beaches, cheap beer, which cricket fans love, an incredibly welcoming, knowledgeable uh, local um, yeah. sort of population. Uh, and um lots of elephants too wandering lots around. of elephants and um kind of a carnival atmosphere yeah. as well as a sense of cricketing hedonism i think which is lacking yeah. at grounds in england and australia or even in india you know where yeah. you can't even take a pen into a cricket ground in sri lanka there's this sort of laid back <laughs> feel that everyone's having a party at the cricket and um yeah. sit wherever you like walk around chat to whoever you want and have a really great day out yeah, agree. What was the atmosphere after when um, Sri Lanka won the World Cup in '96? The atmosphere in um, uh, Colombo and so on must have been fantastic. I think it was just absolute carnival. I mean, sort of incredible disbelief. I think it's mm. important point to make that it happened right off the back of the central bank bombings, which was sort of the mm. worst civilian disaster I think that thus far of the civil war. Um, and you know, Sri Lanka were trapped in a kind of endless cycle of violence and huge underdogs. And so to win the World Cup was just an incredible moment for the country, an incredible moment for all of Sri Lanka. Yeah, marvellous, yeah, deserve. How important is um, cricket tourism to the, to the economy now, Nicholas? Um, you see a lot of it and a lot of cricket tours are advertised. Does it make you a big... Um, is making a big contribution to tourism and to foreign ex foreign exchange earnings, which are obviously desperate at the moment. Mm. 
Uh, yeah, I think that cricket has been and remains a really important kind of economic driver for Sri Lanka. You can feel it when, especially when England are touring. I mean, uh, I spoke to tuk-tuk drivers a lot about cricket when I was there, and they all look forward to the Barmy Army coming because they know that, you know, bars fill up, uh, restaurants fill up, <laughs> hotels fill up. There's a real buzz around Sri Lanka. And I mean, I think 2001, the first time England toured, uh, for a sort of multi-test tour was a huge moment for the country's economy. I think 7,000 English fans came for that tour uh, compared to 8,000 Brits who arrived during the whole of 2000, the year before. And um, the country run out, ran out of beer. And <laughs> given, that, um, given that FX is kind of a constant source of worry for Sri Lanka, I think having cricket fans who want to um, spend plenty of money and enjoy the country uh, is they're always very welcome they always have a great time and I think lots of fans want come and want to come back and yeah I think that um, cricket tours are a huge thing for Sri Lanka. Mm. I give my teeth together what's it like now though it seems to be quite quite rough now at the moment I mean for the country and um, looking after cricket I mean it's this, this terrible sort of civil dis disturbances that are going on and the economic collapse it's terrible it's uh, it's really awful roger i think that um there have been sort of murmurs of uh sri lanka being in economic trouble for a while but i think a lot of things have gone wrong at the same time it of course hasn't been helped by covid the government also instituted the disastrous policy to do with uh chemical fertilizer and crops which has seen sort of farming production uh, slashed it's a worrying situation it's hard to see how sri lanka can work its way out i think the one spiriting thing has been to see the sort of that uh sri lanka is a country where people have been traditionally very scared to speak out against the government and to see the kind of peaceful protest the way that that has been conducted and also to see cricket sort of playing a role in that has been inspiring and uh, we all love sri lanka it's the most beautiful country with the most wonderful people and i think that everyone the world over is really hopeful that there's a resolution to these problems in sight. There was a short-lived demonstration at the Test match in Aust uh, against Australia, wasn't there? Which is um, on the on the hill overlooking the ground. But um, the authorities quickly um, sort of suppressed it and kept it off the television, didn't they? Yeah, there was. I mean, as you say, Rich, the authorities suppressed it. The authorities are keen to, I think, toe the party line that it's a few uh, troublemakers who are protesting, which yeah. I think really isn't the case. I, I mean. You know, Sri Lanka has very little fuel. They've had to close schools because to try and sort of ease the, you know, the situation. Uh, people are struggling to put food on the table. It's a really horrible situation for all of Sri Lanka. And I think that, yeah, the government don't want that to be seen. But uh, it's, yeah, it's hard for, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard to know what to say or how Sri Lanka can. What can happen? It's just awful, awful it, thing. It, it is just I'm awful. I mean, I'm not an economist, Roger, but I mean, when you look at the sort of shortfall of loans, the FX crisis, uh, yeah. it really it looks incredibly, incredibly worrying. I mean, I know the IMF were there and they haven't reached a resolution yet. Uh, so what can happen? I don't know. I think what's really important is that people keep speaking out, that the public keeps speaking out, that um, cricketers keep speaking out and that we in the West give this some more attention. I mean, I don't think it's really been properly covered by the Western media. And I think that it, there needs to be more exposure. 
Before we leave the economy, which is a, indeed a gloomy subject, um, China has a virtual stranglehold, doesn't it, over the Sri Lankan economy at the moment. It's usually indebted to China. Has Chinese influence made the Chinese relationship made any difference that you've seen to Sri Lankan cricket? Or has it kept itself more or less intact away from it? You're right in saying that Sri Lanka has become much more indebted to China, Richard. I think I read that um, 10% of the 51 billion debt is um, to China. Uh, I haven't seen many intrusions into cricket apart from uh, the Hambantota project, which is former president Mahinda Rajapaksa's hometown is Hambantota, deep in the southeast of Sri Lanka, sort of miles away from anywhere. And he wanted to turn Hambantota, his hometown, into a kind of new international hub. So he used Chinese loans to build a port, an airport, and a cricket ground at huge cost. And um, the, yeah, the project's been an absolute disaster. I mean, they weren't able to pay the loans back. So China have now overtaken the port on a 99-year lease. It's part of their Belt and Road kind of system. The airport is dubbed the world's emptiest. I mean, I don't think any flights are going in and out. It's, you know... And um, the cricket ground is hardly done any better. It's hosted 21 ODIs in, uh, I think, the sort of 10, 11 years since it's opened doors. And it really is hard to get to. It's called the Hambantota ground, but it's actually in Suriawewa, which is about two hours inland from Hambantota. And I mean, crowds do turn out whenever there are games there, but there are stories that, you know, villagers have to walk home and have at night and are worried about being sort of smashed by elephants because it's so deep into the rurality. Um, and you wonder whether that kind of absurd investment would have come about were it not for loans from China. Well, I think the answer is it's absolutely wouldn't have come about, would it? I mean, it's, it's, no, uh, I think I think you're right, Roger. I think if the money had to be sort of, you know, if it was Sri Lanka's hard-earned money that had to be paid up front, would yeah. that have happened? Uh, probably not. And I mean, in Colombo now, anyone who goes to Colombo can't sort of fail to see the spectre of this port city that's being built another huge infrastructural development whether it's is it whether it's wise it remains to be seen mm. can i ask you one quick question Sri Lanka have just got bowled out for what 100 or so by um the aussies um and lost the test match so we i mean what has to happen is that 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 doesn't happen and that they become a very powerful force how does that how do we how does sri lankan test cricket become the joyous thing it uh, always has been for so long um it's a tough one roger i think what's been strange over the past couple of years is that sri lanka actually haven't played spin particularly well as a unit in test cricket um which is kind of a conundrum because you think growing up on uh, turning pitches, dust bowls, that they would be good players of spin. But I saw Chris Silverwood in sort of the wake of that test match saying that we need to get better at sweeping, which is kind of, you know, it's a strange thing to hear an uh, English coach criticising an Asian side over how they play spin, and it's a bit worrying. Um, what needs to happen? I think there is a bit of excitement around Sri Lankan cricket at the moment that wasn't there when I spoke to Richard and Peter a year and a half ago. New players have come through probably more so in white ball cricket than in test cricket I think what needs to happen is the long and short of it is they've got to put up bigger scores in tests they've got to get more consistent batting and I think probably there need to be uh some new discoveries perhaps I uh you've got Dimuth Karunaratne the captain and Angelo Matthews and Chandamal probably very much towards the back end of their careers 
And I think there does need to be um, a, f- a couple of new players to come in and sort of bring a bit of uh, vitality on that side. I hope, I hope it happens. I hope it, we certainly do hope it happens. Nick, we've just talked about the great players of Sri Lankan cricket. Are they still involved at all in, in shaping its future? We certainly hope they are. Yeah, they are. There has been um, a fair bit of involvement. I think at the moment you've got um, Vass is the bowling coach. I think Malinga has come on board as a kind of white ball strategy coach. Uh, I think Aravinda, Murali, Sangha and Mahela Jaiwardner have been involved in a technical advisory committee recently. And um, Mahela has worked as a kind of consultant coach. I think I'm sure a lot of people in Sri Lanka would want him to take on the uh, leading role and be the number one guy coaching the national side whether there's a sort of sense still that's a slightly thankless task and a dangerous position to take on I don't know but I think um, yeah the um, greats are involved in uh, helping Sri Lankan cricket Tom Moody who's probably the, been one of the most successful coaches has also been back helping out so the right things are happening but um, systemic change is sort of hard to bring about and uh, we'll have to wait and see how things go moving forward. I think there's excitement about the T20 World Cup and how Sri Lanka can do at that. Fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. So it won't be easy because they'll have to qualify and then they'll be in a sort of group of six, probably with England, Australia, New Zealand and Afghanistan. But I think they can maybe do pull off a giant slang, take a couple of scalps and we'll see. Well, Nick, it's, it's been wonderful talking to you about Sri Lankan cricket. We certainly hope it um, revives and captures the um, the glories which you've captured uh, in your book. Um, your book is called An Island's Eleven. It's published this week by the History Press. Uh, hope it uh, has the success it deserves. And um, thank you very much for joining us and sharing the joy of Sri Lankan cricket with us. Yeah, lovely to talk to you, Nick, and it's a wonderful book. Lovely to talk to you. Even nicer to be in Sri Lanka, but it's a great book. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Richard and Roger, for the kind words. They um, really mean the world. And thank you so much for having me on.